Hi, and welcome to Anatomith. In this episode, we'll be looking at a fairy tale from the Brothers Grimm, and we'll find out why, when someone promises to send messengers, you should maybe ask what these messengers look like so that you aren't caught unawares. We'll also be looking at the correlation between these messengers and aging and death in real life. Anatomyth is a podcast about stories, conjecture, and the human body. Humans have long been using stories as a way to make sense of the world around them. This podcast looks at these stories, the myths, legends, lore, and fairy tales, and tries to find an aspect of medicine that fits in with certain aspects of fiction. I'm Audrey, your host. I'm a medical student who's always been interested in such stories, and I love looking for connections, even though they sometimes don't exist. Please remember that any recommendations I might make shouldn't be taken too seriously. I'm not yet a medical professional, and what I say shouldn't be counted as medical advice. Likewise, the proposed link between myth and medicine shouldn't be counted as fact. This is a podcast that's primarily for entertainment purposes, and it's filled with speculation and conjecture. This is episode 4, Grim Messages. When we think of the Brothers Grimm, we tend to think of fairy tales. Wicked stepmothers, animals who turn out to be royalty, cats wearing highly unsuitable footwear. For a cat, anyway. Basically, kid stuff. These stories, while today considered fairy tales, were based on folk tales, once upon a time. And most were from the regions of Hesse and Westphalia in modern-day Germany. The first version of Grimm's Children's and Household Tales was published in two volumes, the first in 1812 and the second in 1815. The brothers, Wilhelm and Jakob, would go on to publish six more editions over the next four decades, adding some stories, removing others, and embellishing and editing the rest. These stories were gathered from old manuscripts and oral retellings. And in the first edition, the brothers left the stories pretty much alone, writing them down as they had found them. But gradually, the tales were made more palatable, and the brothers eventually made these stories their own. Today's story, titled Death's Messengers, comes from the fourth edition, which was published in 1840. I'm not too sure how much of it was from another source and how much was from the brothers' imagination, but just like what the brothers did, I'm going to take a few artistic liberties with this tale. So death is lying on the side of the road, And I mean death with a capital T. He's bruised and battered, and there was this whole encounter with a giant 
really, Death didn't want to get into it. Anyway, he's bemoaning the fate of the world. If he stayed there, no one would die, and pretty soon the world would get so crowded that people would quite literally have to stand on top of each other. And let's not even talk about resource depletion. A young, jovial man comes along. He's strong and healthy, and he's doing a little song and dance as well. Spotting the crumpled up creature lying on the side of the road, this man goes to help him. He helps him up and even pours out a strengthening draught. As Death comes around, he asks if the other man knew who he was. Nope, not a clue, answers the youth, wondering why he should know the name of some rando that he'd found on the side of the road with the living daylights beaten out of him. Well, I'm Death, Death says. Surprise. Death goes on to say that, while he can make no exceptions for any man, like that's just not how the world works, he would not come for the youth unexpectedly. Instead, he would first send his messengers to warn the young man that death was near. The young man nods and goes on his way, lighthearted. I guess there's nothing like knowing that you have something akin to a personal alarm clock to tell you when death is near. The young man spends the rest of his life enjoying himself and living without thought. Maybe he partied hard because YOLO, but youth and vigor and health They don't last that long, and soon, age catches up with this man, bringing with it sickness and sorrows, tormenting his days and taking away his rest at night. Still, the man remains complacent, remembering Death's promise that he would first send his messengers before making his grand entrance. Also, what would Death's messengers even look like? Black ravens, a black cat crossing the man's path, maybe a large black dog, preferably with three heads, or a politely worded letter delivered by personal messenger and signed with a skull and a scythe, or maybe even just a short, hey, by the way, coming for you at 3 p.m. today, can't wait to see you, XOXO, your old friend Death. Whatever the man was expecting, it never came. And as soon as he would feel better, he would feast and be merry again, without regard for his health. Until one day, he feels a tap on his shoulder. The man turns around, and his heart sinks, and all of the blood drains from his face. It was death, motioning for him to follow, and telling him that his time was up. The man is outraged, but Death promised. He promised to send his messengers, and not once did this guy see any messengers. It wasn't fair. Death sighs and shakes his head and probably pinches the bridge of his nose. The following is a quote from the translation that I'm using. 
death says, Have I not sent you one messenger after another? Did not fever come and strike you and shake you and throw you down? Has not dizziness numbed your head? Has not gout pinched your limbs? Did your ears not buzz? Did toothache not bite into your cheeks? Did your eyes not darken? And furthermore, has not my own brother's sleep reminded you every night of me? During the night did you not lie there as if you were already dead? I mean, that's pretty solid. And there's not a lot that you can say after a speech like that. And so the man, accepting his fate, went with death. Fairy tales and folk stories sometimes function as cautionary tales. Like, be a well-behaved child so the boogeyman doesn't eat you. Or, don't stray from the forest path or a wolf will eat granny and dress up in drag just for a chance to eat you. Which, by the way, seems like a lot of trouble to go through just for a meal. But I guess that Uber Eats doesn't have a little girl a la carte option. I like to think of this story as one of those precautionary tales. I think that we humans have always had a tendency to think that we're invincible sometimes. And maybe that's because you have a deal with death or some other anthropomorphic personification to first send you messengers to announce their arrival. So you, very naturally, feel a bit more complacent that you still have a lot of life left to live. But death is a sneaky, sneaky entity. And this tale just reminds us that we aren't actually invincible. And that death comes at the end. In the last few episodes, I took one topic and focused on that for most or all of the episode. I thought that I'd switch it up a bit in this one. Instead of delving into just one of the conditions listed in the tale, I'll look at a few of them in relation to aging and or death. And with that in mind, here's a little recap of who death named as his messengers. There's fever, dizziness, gout, buzzing in the ears, toothache, darkened vision, and, in Death's own words, his own brother's sleep. Clearly, I can't go through all of these, even if I just tackled them in the most general terms, there aren't enough minutes left in this episode. So instead, I'll be talking about fever, gout, age-related vision and hearing loss, and the correlation between prolonged sleep and poor health. But before we get into all of that, here's a message from today's sponsors. Are you terrified of growing old? Do you want to watch your grandchildren grow up and die? and their grandchildren after them. Or maybe you just want to amass untold amounts of wealth and knowledge. Whatever your reason, you should try an elixir of immortality. 
And with all of these elixirs on the market, here's one that you know you can trust. Mercury Chewables. These are made from only the best quality locally sourced mercury. Side effects include paranoia and insanity. Defy old age. Take Mercury Chewables every day. We've all had a fever at least once in our life. Fever can be due to any number of things, but most commonly it's due to an infection, whether that's a virus, parasite, bacteria, or any of the other small things that can wreak havoc on our bodies. A fever is basically the body's response to one of these pathogens. In fever, there's an increase in the body temperature, and normally this body temperature is very tightly regulated by different mechanisms, which cool you down when it's too hot, like sweating, or keep you warm when it's too cold, like shivering. What happens during a fever is that the body amps up these processes which generate or conserve heat. So that means shivering to produce more heat and narrowing of the blood vessels. This keeps blood away from the surface of the body and lessens heat dissipation. All of these mechanisms are controlled by a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, which senses changes in temperature and sends out signals for either heat conservation or dissipation. So there are a lot of complicated substances and molecules and cell responses that go into generating a fever. And I don't really feel like getting into all of these teeny tiny little things right now. But basically, the cells of the body respond to the pathogens, so the viruses and bacteria. And then there's this whole cascade that happens, which tells the hypothalamus, hey, there's something here that shouldn't be here, it's time to start a fever. So that's how it starts. The why of a fever in response to an infection is still a little unclear, but there are a few leading theories. In the case of a viral infection, well, viruses are pretty much bags of DNA or RNA that can't do anything by themselves. They need hosts, like humans or animals, and they kind of hijack the host's cells and cellular machinery in order to replicate and make more copies of themselves. An important reason for thermoregulation, or maintaining a core body temperature, is that our cells work at an optimal temperature. 37 degrees Celsius, or for those of you who use Fahrenheit, 98.6. Any temperature that is slightly lower or higher can alter the biomechanics of the cell. And in fact, much higher temperatures to the order of 4 or 5 degrees Celsius more can actually already start to break down proteins. We also have to be really careful that the body temperature doesn't exceed 41 degrees Celsius or 105.8 degrees Fahrenheit, because that's the point when organ damage can start to occur. 
So if there's an optimal temperature at which to carry on with the cell's activities, why does the body increase its temperature? Well, exactly for that reason. Increasing internal temperature will stop cells from working as quickly and as efficiently as they normally would. And when the cells don't work, the virus, which wants to use the cells for a free ride, cannot replicate. Increased temperature also helps the immune cells of the body to fight off an infection. And most of the time, a low-level fever is successful at fighting this off. Today, we have antibiotics, antivirals, and other drugs which work against these infectious agents. We also have vaccines now, which prevent you from getting infected in the first place. These are luxuries that humanity didn't really have in the 1800s. Germ theory is the theory that germs, or pathogens, are the cause of disease. This theory wasn't accepted until the late 1800s. And before then, medical professionals didn't even believe in hand washing, let alone that viruses and bacteria could be spread through human contact. So it's not difficult to see why, in a time like that, infections and fever were not only way more common, but could also very easily mean the end. Death mentions gout as one of his messengers. Has gout not pinched your limbs? Gout was once called the disease of kings because of its association with the consumption of alcohol and high-protein diets of seafood and red meat, basically a lifestyle that only rich people could afford back in the day. It's one of the most frequently recorded medical conditions in history, and Hippocrates himself called it the unwalkable disease and the arthritis of the rich. Once again, because you had to be really rich to afford the lifestyle that predisposes to gout. Going back even further, the first known record of it is from ancient Egypt, where the condition was called podagra, which has actually been identified as acute gout in the big toe. Gout is a common arthritic condition, which presents with intense joint pain. I want to draw your attention to the word arthritic. If you've listened to the second episode, I mentioned that the suffix itis in medical terminology just means inflammation. Arthritis, therefore, is an inflammation of the joints. We tend to think of arthritis as joint pain, which particularly affects the elderly. But it's not just a single disease. And gout is just one in over a hundred different kinds of arthritis. Gout most commonly affects the first metatarsopharyngeal joint, or the joint of the big toe. And the pain typically occurs at night. Remember how the tale mentions that the man couldn't rest well at night? The joint swells and becomes red and it feels warm or sometimes even hot to the touch. And the person can even experience fever, chills, and shivering. There's fever again. So earlier in this episode, I mentioned that infections are the most common cause of fever. 
but that fever can also be due to other processes. One such process is inflammation, just like in the case of gout. Back when the theory of the four humors was still considered sound medical theory, doctors thought that gout occurred because of one of these four humors flowing into a joint and that was what caused the pain and inflammation. The four humors theory was proposed by Aristotle, a brilliant philosopher, but even he had his off days. Aristotle's humoral theory states that there are four humors or fluids in the body. There's blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile, and that all illnesses, from fever to gout, were caused by an imbalance in these four humors. The word gout actually derives from the Latin gutta, meaning drop, as in an excess of one of the four humors dropping into the joint. If you stretch this definition enough, I guess it's not too far from the truth. Today, we know that gout is due to the deposition of uric acid crystals in the joints, and these crystals are what cause the inflammation and damage. So where do these crystals come from? Uric acid is a byproduct of food digestion, when the food contains purines. Purine is a compound that the body needs, and some foods, like alcohol, red meat, seafood, and shellfish, have a higher purine content than others. So when the body is digesting food and getting all of these purines, uric acid is also being formed on the side. Uric acid is excreted in the urine, but when there's just too much in the body, there's no way that peeing is going to be able to get rid of all of it. Of course, before it's excreted, it has to first pass through the kidneys where it's filtered. This means that if this filtering system is broken or damaged, you can also still end up with too much uric acid in the body. Gout is typically seen in males over the age of 30, but can also occur in postmenopausal women. In addition to alcohol consumption and the protein-rich diet, gout is also associated with obesity, hypertension, excessive fructose, and some drugs like diuretics. Fructose is a sweetener that's found in nearly every single sugar-sweetened drink, and diuretics are medications that make you pee. In the past, some people actually thought that attacks of gout were protective against other diseases. In 1873, for example, Horace Walpole wrote to Sir Horace Mann that gout, quote, prevents other illnesses and prolongs life. Could I cure that gout? Should I not have a fever, a palsy, or an apoplexy? End quote. I guess it didn't occur to him that fever also sometimes accompanied gout. And just as death listed gout as one of his messengers in our fairy tale, we now know that gout actually increases the risk of death. Several recent studies have found that patients who have gout also tend to have other comorbidities. 
Comorbidities are when two or more disorders or conditions occur together. And common comorbidities in gout are chronic kidney disease, cardiovascular diseases like ischemic heart disease and heart failure, and metabolic diseases like diabetes. On top of that, gout is also associated with an increased risk of death, whether that's from the cardiovascular diseases we just talked about or other causes. We're all aware that our bodies go through certain changes as we age, and sometimes these changes get more pronounced when we're quite a bit older. Weakening eyesight and hearing, for example, are two fairly common knowledge trade-offs of managing to stay alive for a few more years. Now, pretty much every eye structure changes with age. In episode 2, I talked a little bit about the structures of the eye, and particularly the cornea. If you haven't heard episode 2 yet, or just need a bit of a refresher, the cornea is a clear structure which hangs out right in front of the pupil and the iris, and it's basically front and center of the eyeball. It's the first thing that light passes through as it enters the eye, and keeping the cornea smooth and transparent is really important in being able to see clearly. We're going to take it a little bit more detailed in this episode. Right on the surface of the cornea, there's a tear film, a thin layer which basically protects and nourishes the cornea. And aging eyes may not be able to produce enough tears. This leads to dry eyes, and I mean eyes which are dry, not the thing we put in fog machines to add a bit more drama. Dry eyes are much more susceptible to corneal infection, inflammation, and scarring. And as I mentioned, keeping the cornea smooth and transparent, really important in being able to see clearly. Cataracts are a fairly common condition, as well as a natural part of aging. A cataract is an area of clouding in the lens of the eye. Once the light passes through our hopefully clear cornea, the lens is the structure which focuses these light rays in order to help us see. If a cataract is large enough or very strategically placed in the visual path of the eye, it can cause cloudy or blurry vision. Cataracts develop slowly and are one of the most common causes of loss of vision. As already mentioned, Cataracts are often age-related. They set in around the mid-40s or 50s, and environmental factors also play a role into their development. Another leading cause of severe visual loss is called age-related macular degeneration. Kind of a long phrase, but we're going to break it down. As the name implies, this is destruction of the macula which occurs with age. So what's the macula and why do we care about it? It seems like I'm just throwing these words at you. The macula is the part of the eye with the highest visual acuity. Basically, it has the sharpest resolution. 
it's also responsible for central vision. Age-related macular degeneration, like cataracts, involves an interplay between age and personal factors and environmental insults. Patients who have this will experience a progressive loss of their central vision because, again, the macula is responsible for central vision. And this can start out as blurry lines or distortions and over time will just progress into blank or dark spots in the central field of vision. These are just a few of the more common age-related causes of loss of eyesight. And aging affects other sense organs as well. The buzzing in the ears described in the fairy tale may be tinnitus. Tinnitus is the perception of sound, usually a persistent buzzing, hissing, or even ringing, when there's no physical source of that sound. I like to think of it like a phantom limb, but with sound and hearing. Tinnitus can be caused by many things, just like fever, but it's commonly associated with presbycusis, or hearing loss due to aging, and tinnitus actually worsens with age. As with the age-related deterioration of the eye, both age and other factors work together to contribute to age-related hearing loss and tinnitus. Unfortunately, the deterioration of hearing can and often does affect communication, and as a result, it can negatively impact mental health contributing to feelings of isolation, anxiety, depression, and stress, and can contribute to the development of cognitive decline and even dementia. So now we've seen how fever, gout, darkness before the eyes, a buzzing in the ears, and just general loss of eyesight and hearing may be indications of either getting older or impending death. But what about this whole brother sleep thing? The concept of death and sleep as siblings can be found as far back as Greek mythology. Hypnos, the god of sleep, and Thanatos, the god of death, were brothers. The same concept can be found in pop culture today. Though most of the time it's death and dream, rather than death and sleep. It can also be found in another fairy tale, this one written by Hans Christian Andersen, a contemporary of the Grimm's. It's titled Ole Lukoye and was published in the third installment of Fairy Tales Told for Children, New Collection, in 1841. Ole Lukoye is about a Sandman-like creature who visits a boy every day for a week telling him stories. On the last day, he tells a story about his brother, who is also called Ole Lukoye, but who only visits someone once and takes them away with him on his horse. This brother is also called Death. It was a little difficult to get a handle on the actual beliefs around the relationship of sleep and death in 18th and 19th century German-speaking states. More generally, physicians of the time seem to prescribe to Aristotle's theory of the four humors, 
and his belief that sleep started in the abdomen as part of the process of concoction. According to Aristotle, concoction was part of the digestive process, and sleep was responsible for physical vitality and increased longevity. At the same time, there were puritanical ideals which scorned excess of any kind, including sleep, because excess was a cause of unnecessary sluggishness, and everyone knows that's a mortal sin. There were also some fears of threats to body and soul, which lurked in the night under the guise of darkness. For example, that darkness may actually be death, come to take them to their grave. Additionally, a physician named Robert McNish, most famous for publishing a book titled The Anatomy of Drunkenness, published a book in 1830 titled The Philosophy of Sleep. In this book, he concludes that, and I quote, complete sleep is a temporary metaphysical death, end quote. He does, however, go on to say that the main point of sleep was, and again, this is a quote, to restore the strength expanded during wakefulness, to recruit the body by promoting nutrition and giving rest to the muscles, and to renovate the mind by the repose which it affords the brain, end quote. So those are some of the theories on sleep, health, bodily harm, and death from around the time. But fast forward a couple hundred years, and a few recent studies have investigated the correlations between long and short sleep and associated comorbidities. A study published in 2019 found a correlation between longer sleep duration defined as nine or more hours a night, and a greater risk of stroke. There are also many studies from previous years which have found a correlation between prolonged sleep and other chronic comorbidities like diabetes, obesity, hypertension, and cardiovascular diseases. Another study, however, from 2014, also investigating the comorbidities of long sleepers contradicts many of the other studies. Because obviously, science can never be straightforward and clear-cut. This particular study defined long sleepers as those who slept for 10 or more hours a night and only included those who didn't have any sleep disorders. It found that while long sleepers had an increased risk of diabetes and psychiatric disorders, there was no increased risk of other comorbidities. The study also found that these aforementioned comorbidities were very common in those who slept for five hours a night or even less. Of course, this is just one study against many, but still, pretty controversial. And if there is a correlation between longer sleep and poor health, it's not so clear if longer sleep causes poor health or if poor health causes us to sleep longer. It's a real chicken or the egg situation. A review on sleep duration and chronic disease published in 2010 theorizes that, quote, 
mortality risks of long sleep may be associated with general failing health, unquote, and that the duration of sleep gradually increases as we age. Thus, it could be that aging and poor health actually lead to longer sleep, rather than longer sleep leading to poor health and increased mortality. As for me, I feel like I should be more bothered by this, but listen, if science can't yet agree on whether or not longer sleep is associated with poor health, I don't have high hopes of it resolving this A cost B or B cost A situation anytime soon. So that's it for this episode. I have a particular interest in the history of medicine, and it's always really fun to be able to share my enthusiasm for the topic. I also think that knowing how easy it was to die in the past increases appreciation for all the things that we take for granted today, like good basic hygiene and medical practices backed by science and evidence. It's also always interesting to see, explicitly stated, how people in the past saw a correlation between certain conditions and aging and even death, and that we're now backing these observations up with research and numbers. Next month's episode will be centered around one of my favorite myths. It's a revenge story from Celtic mythology, which involves a horse race, an enraged goddess, and the classic trope of punishing people for their ancestors' mistakes. If you like the show, please subscribe to it on your preferred podcast app, and please rate the show and leave a review. It helps to get the word out about the show, and I really appreciate getting feedback. Also, tell your friends about it. You can also reach the show on social media, whether it's to suggest a topic, discuss which one of Death's messengers you like best, or just say hi. Also, let me know which of the four humors from Aristotle's theory is your favorite. I personally like black bile, but just because it sounds way cooler than any of the other three. You can find the show on Twitter, at AnatomythPod, and on Instagram and Facebook, at Anatomith. You can also send an email to audrey at anatomith.com. Links to the website and social media are in the show notes. I'm Audrey, your host, and this was Anatomith. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.